Please turn with me this morning to Romans 11. We've been focusing our attention on that passage for all three lessons of the week. And as I've mentioned, we're, the momentum seems to be building pretty strongly for a study in Romans, which will end our Better Call Paul series, or maybe it'll continue under the general umbrella of Better Call Paul, but it'll be called Romans the Epistle. Just like we have Rev the book, we have Romans the Epistle, and as I said the other night, that distinguishes the epistle from the people, the Romans, so that you'll know what I mean. But that's coming up, and so this is our last, second to the last increment in Better Call Paul, Romans 11. When we get through that chapter, then there's going to be a small and relatively short treatment of the pastoral epistles. That's First, Second Timothy and Titus which might bring some other things in, and that will be our strange entry into Romans. So that's coming up. Keep that in mind and keep that in prayer. Romans 11. We also want to announce that, once again, the newly sanctified place called Eaton Park in Waterworks Mall will also be the location of Steve Zvonik's study and discussion that he monitors and that some of you are participating in. That's tomorrow night, Waterworks Eaton Park, and that's from 7 to 8. And those meetings are quite blessed, and they're the beginning of something, I think, quite extraordinary. Today I want to speak, and the whole series of Better Call Paul was drawn from a... TV drama called Better Call Saul, and of course, Paul is Saul of Tarsus, and so I thought that was amazingly clever, but (laughs) kidding. This one's based on a comedy series called Curb Your Enthusiasm. This one, I draw the title from it. The teaching isn't based on it, believe me, but the message will be entitled, Hey Gentile Christians. Curb your enthusiasm, and I'll tell you why. I mentioned this last week. Romans 11, 13, Paul says, but now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. In view of the fact that I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I'm expanding the range of my ministry. The word is doxazo here. It means glorifying or magnifying my ministry, but In context, it means that he's expanding the effect of it by speaking also to the Jews through the Gentiles. So now I'm speaking to you Gentiles. In view of the fact that I am the apostle to the Gentiles, I'm expanding the range of my ministry, verse 14. If by doing so, I may provoke my flesh, speaking here of his fellow Israelites, Paul's brothers, his countrymen, his brothers and sisters, Israel after the flesh, as it were. Goes back to Romans 9.3. I provoke my flesh to jealousy and save some of them. Paul expects some of his fellow hardened Jewish believers to be saved during the course of this evil age. He expects them all to be saved at the end of, of this evil age. That's a very important principle. I mentioned it every time we read this. Then he says, for you see, if their rejection means the reconciliation of the world, what will their acceptance mean but life from the dead? For if the first fruits offered up are holy, we dealt with that on Wednesday and Thursday this past week, so is the whole batch of dough. And if the root is holy, so are the branches. Paul's aiming, remember, to Romans 11, 26, where all Israel will be saved. His absolute and unqualified assurance, all Israel will be saved. But not until the totality of the nations, the Gentiles, we could call them the pagans. People say the pagans, I say, that's me. 
a graced pagan, a pagan that's been graced into union with Jesus Christ. I've said that in Romans 11, 1, all the way through 12, 3, and much more of Romans elsewhere, is directed toward heading off a certain human conceit and curbing enthusiasm when it's wrongly motivated and about a wrong thing. This message has profound implications to Christians today and to non-Christians for that matter because of a lot of enthusiasm is directed, a lot of zeal is directed toward things which are not good, biblically speaking, and that are based on human conceit, whether it's ethnic, racial, personal, social, religious, or ideological. Arrogance is at the root of much enthusiasm today. And so this has wide-ranging applications, which we aren't to look out from ourselves to others about, but look to ourselves, as we'll see. The heading off of human conceit is important, not least because humility It's opposite. Humility, rooted in the knowledge of God's righteousness, which is a divine action, which requires no human cooperation. I'll say that again. Humility, rooted in the knowledge of God's righteousness, is the fundamental requirement for kingdom living. Jesus said, unless you humble yourselves and become like this little child whom he has right next to him or right in front of him, you'll in no way enter into the kingdom of the heavens. Matthew 11, 18, 3. That means you'll, there's no way you can enter into the kingdom and live in the kingdom. Or we'll say this, live worthily of your calling or live and walk according to the gospel of grace. There's no way without humility. Furthermore, living in the kingdom of God is entirely opposed to human conceit. Living in the kingdom of God is only possible through humility. Paul makes two declarations that speak to this. First of all, 1 Corinthians 4.20, for the kingdom of God is not in boastful talk. That's what he means in the implication there. Kingdom of God is not in boastful talk, but in the power of God. The power of God. 1 Corinthians 4.20. Again, in Romans 14.17, we'll make much of this in the future. The kingdom of God is not about human strictures of eating and drinking. And there's a lot in there about that from Romans 14. There are people who are free to eat and drink certain things. And they despise people who hold off on certain things and restrain because of Jewish laws. And there are also those who despise the weak and those who judge the strong. And there's a mess in Romans. There's more of a divisive problem in Rome than there is in Corinth, incidentally, as we understand. And that'll be important before we get to a study of Romans. There are five fragments in Rome. And several of those five fragments are pitted against each other. And Paul's trying to straighten that out so that everyone will live according to the gospel of the grace of God instead of through human conceit. So in Romans fourteen seventeen, it's not about eating and drinking. Someone told me a joke recently and I thought it was rather funny but I don't want to offend anybody in it. They said, you know, the knock-knock jokes. This one's a little different because it's a vegan knocking on your door. And it's knock-knock, and you say, who's there? And the person says, I'm better than you. Well, anyways, that, that expresses something about what's going on in Rome. There are some people that were vegetarians because of an asceticism, a a Gentile asceticism. Others were not eating certain foods because the Torah forbid it and they weren't kosher. The problem was those who were free to eat were 
condemning or literally despising those who felt they had to restrict their diet. And those who were restricting their diet, who were infected by the gospel of the false teacher, thought these Gentiles, they judged the Gentiles as not being saved because they weren't lining up to Jewish kosher dietary things. So there was, that was a bigger problem than meets the eye. That's why Paul says in Romans fourteen seventeen, the kingdom of God is not about eating and drinking, dietary laws or dietary freedom. It's about righteousness. And that's the act of divine deliverance worked out in people's lives. Righteousness, joy, and peace in the Holy Spirit, by the Holy Spirit. Kingdom of God, therefore, in 1 Corinthians 4.20 is all about God's power. In 14.17 of Romans, it's all about God's spirit. It's all about God's action in Christ. That's very important. Humility is the basic virtue of the Messiah. Come to me, Jesus said, because I'm meek, humble, lowly in heart, humble in heart. The kingdom of God is not about human eating and drinking per the strictures of Torah or Gentile asceticism or veganism or vegetarianism. The kingdom of God is about divine righteousness Divinely produced joy and peace in the Holy Spirit. I think there's just as much about being grateful for the food we're receiving than there is about preservatives and other fears that people have. If God sanctifies what we eat, it prevents a lot of disasters. So we can almost say that a lot of physical disasters happen to people because of their lack of gratitude for what they've received. And this is an attitudinal thing, but that's neither here nor there for today. The right interpretation of Romans hinges upon the right definition of terms. And that's another lead-in to the, gospel, to the epistle of Romans. It, hinges on the definition of terms like the kingdom of God or like the righteousness of God, which is really the key term, the catchword of all of Romans. And about joy, peace, and indeed even the definition of the Holy Spirit. The right interpretation of Romans hinges largely on the right definition of these things. Now about these terms and several other key terms and catchwords in Romans, we're therefore obliged to ask, at least I am in my study, I'm asking Quidset, what is it? What is the righteousness of God? Is it his justice or is it a divine action of grace in Christ that requires no cooperation from the creature, from the creation, from human beings? That's more likely the case. You can see how that determines an interpretation, very much so. Quidset, what is it? What is its, as the philosopher said, quiddity, the quiddity, the whatness of it? What is its essential meaning? And this is going to be an indispensable part of our upcoming, if the Lord wills, notice I'm saying that, upcoming, if the Lord wills, study in Romans, the epistle. Hey, Gentile Christians, Paul says in this section, curb your enthusiasm. Now listen carefully. Enthusiasm is good. It's called zeal in the scriptures. It's good when it's about a good thing and when it's motivated properly. Jesus, in turning over the money tables in the temple complex, was quoted as saying, the zeal of my father's house has consumed me. That's an enthusiasm about a good thing. You know, the verse that he talks about, his father's house, is from Isaiah, and it says, my father's house is a house of prayer for all the nations. But you've made it a den of thieves, which means essentially they were collecting money for a revolution against Rome. It was an entirely Jewish conceit at that time. Jesus rebuked it severely. He purified the temple, which was a preview of things to come 
in A.D. 70. But zeal consumed him, the zeal of his father's house, the zeal of his father's purpose consumed Jesus Christ, motivated him entirely. That's a good enthusiasm. Paul identified a wrong enthusiasm in the false teachers who plagued the three churches in Galatia. In Galatians 4, 17 and 18. For there Paul says the false teachers are enthusiastic about you. But he says, but it's not for good. It's not for your good. He followed up by saying instead they want to isolate you, meaning from Paul. So that you'll be enthusiastic about them. (laughs) In Galatians 6, he goes further and says, they want to glory and boast about your flesh. In other words, they want to boast about how many Gentiles they circumcised. And that's not good enthusiasm. It's kind of like pastors today bragging about how many people they baptized Oh, sorry. I'm heading home today. A whole lot of the theologians I read make a whole lot about ritual baptism. I don't think the Bible makes that much of it. I think the Bible makes much more about the reality of the baptism by the Spirit into Christ. The baptism by the Spirit into his death and therefore into the upward trajectory of his resurrection. So there's a lot of people that have been dunked, dipped, and squirted by water that are no different than they were before they got wet. And I think there's a lot of people that never got wet, like the thief on the cross, for example, who got righteous and rectified by the grace of God. Another side comment. No extra charge. Just kidding, there's no charge for any of these things. Now, it's good, he says, it's always good, without exception, to be enthusiastic about a good thing. If enthusiasm is not properly motivated, or if it's rooted in the wrong reason, or about a wrong thing, then that enthusiasm ought to be curbed, checked. Restrained, and I'll use a stronger word, one that Paul uses, put off. Why? Because this kind of enthusiasm rooted in conceit is part of the Adamic ontology, the old man that has to be put off. This is part of the thinking of the evil age that's passing away. Everybody wants to be up to date with their technological advances. They want to get the latest thing. They want to have the latest fashion. And they have failed to recognize that they're not really up to date with the plan of God. They're still living in this evil passing away age. They're living in a passing away function and life and disposition and attitude. So take not no care for what you put on, the clothing you wear, the fashions of the world. They're all passing away. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. All these things will be added to you. That's a promise from God. Notice I said kingdom of God and his, God's, righteousness. I didn't plan on that, but those are the two things we opened up with. What is the kingdom of God? What is the righteousness of God? Answer to those two questions gives you half the interpretation of Romans. So, if enthusiasm isn't properly motivated, it needs to be put off entirely in some cases. In Romans 10.2, Paul curbs the enthusiasm of the Jewish Christians in Rome and of his fellow, his fellow Israelites after the flesh. He curbs their enthusiasm because he says about his hardened brothers and sisters, I bear witness to them that they have a zeal for God, but it's not according to knowledge, meaning it's not according to the knowledge of the righteousness of God. And man, does this hit home among Christians today. Zeal and enthusiasm without 
a knowledge of the righteousness of God. The writer had the same problem in the church in writing to Hebrews 5.13. He said, you are unskilled in the word of righteousness in Hebrews 5.13. Romans will make you skilled in the word of righteousness. And it will be a great incentive to put off the old man. Because God doesn't say, better call Saul. He says, better call Paul. Better put off Saul. If we want to refer to Saul as the old man of Paul in an analogy only. It's what is called, and I'm so glad that my, one of my most important study tools is not a Greek lexicon, but an American Heritage College Dictionary. I'm so glad I looked up this word. It's triumphalism. That's T-R-I-U-M-P, like triumph, and then A-L-I-S-M. There's nothing wrong with the word triumph. But triumphalism, the American Heritage College Dictionary, you'll see this in notes, fifth edition. Give them credit where credit is due. It says triumphalism is disproportionate or unreasonable celebration of the perceived successes and virtues of a particular group. Religion or ideology relative to those of others. Let's say that again. Triumphalism is disproportionate or unreasonable celebration of the perceived successes and virtues of a particular group, religion, or ideology relative to those of others, usually comparing with others and saying we're better than you. This seeps into Christendom. And Christendom isn't Christianity. There's two different things. Christendom is the relatively large group of human beings that claim Christianity as a religious choice over other choices. That's not Christianity. So this is close to a perfect definition of the attitude and thinking of some Gentile Christians in Rome. Paul called them the strong who despise the weak, the strong in faith who despise the weak. And their despising of the weak and their flaunting of their Gentile liberties and their gospel liberty and even their true liberties, but their flaunting of it against the conscience of the weak in faith, which were mostly Jewish Christians, invited a reciprocal judgmentalism from the weak in faith and a serious rift. So many people think that Romans doesn't have a crisis that it addresses. All of Paul's epistles have a crisis that it addresses. All of them. There's some reason why he writes, and it's a crisis. And it has to do with the crisis of the change of ages that was brought about through the crucified Messiah and the resurrected Messiah. And so Romans, and I can show you this, and will hopefully in the Roman study, had a more dangerous factionalism than Corinth did. Corinth mostly had a, an over-enthusiastic, charismatic triumphalism. Certain gifts were held up above others, and they were the spectacular gifts. When Paul said, hey, God heaps more honor on the unseen, on the invisible, on those gifts that he gives that are not touted or spectacular he gives more honor to them he's trying to balance and therefore put off the enthusiasm of the overly zealous charismatics in Corinth that's a problem it's not as bad as the one in Rome Paul's dealing with five factions he's member of one of the so-called factions he is the strong who doesn't despise the weak he's among a group of the strong in faith who does not despise the weak for their scruples, for their weak conscience, in fact, for the weakness of their faith. And he's trying to bring more people into that fold. And I'll, I'll be teaching on that. It's, it's a remarkable bunch of insights that have come up recently about Romans. And we're not only capitalizing on the insights of others, we're moving beyond them by the grace of God. 
and by God's Spirit. And so, triumphalism was a great problem. It caused one group of Gentile Christians to despise their Jewish brothers and sisters in Christ. And it also invited and evoked or strengthened the judgmentalism of a specific group of Jewish Christians in Rome. This is all comes out in Romans 14. What is more, this is precisely the kind of thinking that Paul identifies as mental and attitudinal conformity to this present evil age. This is exact, this triumphalism is exactly the thinking of the passing age, the evil age, as Paul describes it in Galatians 1.4. So he's saying this kind of putting off of triumphalism is part of your being delivered and rescued from this present evil age, practically speaking. It's part of the present evil age, and that means it's a damic ontology. It's part of the life and existence in the Adam through whom death comes to all. It is not part of the existence of the Christian and the life of the Christian in Christ. It's not part of walking according to the truth of the gospel. And so, what again? I'll say this again. What is more, this is precisely the kind of thinking, triumphalism, that Paul identifies as a both a mental and an attitudinal conformity to this present evil age. Romans 12.2. There's a sweet segue from Romans 11 right into 12.2 and 12.3 where Paul says, I, Paul, according to the authority given to me and the grace given to me as an apostle, am telling you to stop being arrogant. He says that to the Galatians. He says that to the Gentile Christians in Rome, but he also said it to the Jewish Christians in Rome because arrogance is the root of divisiveness, even as humility is the basis for keeping the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace, as Ephesians four one to three says. Humility is a lacking virtue today. In many places. And I have to check that in my own heart constantly. So this conceit is conformity to the present age. Number two, it is a distinct characteristic of the Adamic ontology, the paleo man, the old man, the passing man, the man that's no longer in vogue in the kingdom of God, no longer in fashion. It's like the guy wearing the wrong garment to the wedding garment, to the wedding feast. It's putting on the old man and trying to come into to true Christianity. You get tossed out, bound up and tossed out. That's not literal. That's a parable. Matthew 22. That's why he says, put on the new man. Dress appropriately for the occasion, the marriage feast of the lamb and his bride. The new man, the new person. Put off the old If I told you how much Christian living and Christian service was done in the energy of Adamic ontology, you'd faint. You'd faint. And we don't want a lot of fainting people here. It would make our doctors in the ministry very busy to try to revitalize them. Okay. In Romans 11.13, Paul challenges the Goliath-like triumphalism. Remember what David said about Goliath. Who is this SOB, this uncircumcised loudmouth? These Gentile Christians who are railing against the tender consciences of Jewish believers, and there's a great influx of them now because under Emperor Claudius, and by the way, his great-great-great-great-granddaughter is our own Claudia Schaefer. No, no, I'm only kidding. I call her Empress Claudia. Claudius kicked out all the Jews out of Rome and all, a lot of Jewish Christians, including A&P, Achilla and Priscilla. And then that action was, to use some of the language recently, repealed and replaced by the freedom of the Jews coming back into Rome. So it was a great influx after the Claudian expulsion of Jews into Rome. And by the time Paul wrote, that whole edict had been replaced, and so there was a great influx of Jewish Christians into Rome and into the 
church in Rome that was already divided, and they were called the weak. And many of them, not all of them, Paul was an exception. He was a Jewish Christian, but he was strong in faith. He knew that he had a liberty in Christ, but he wouldn't flaunt it. And he wouldn't despise those who hadn't quite got their conscience strong enough to reject and refuse and put away kosher dietary regulations. Paul didn't just call them a bunch of legalistic Jews and kick them out of fellowship. He very much welcomed them and said, you all better start welcoming each other as Christ welcomed you into his kingdom for the glory of God the Father. Romans 15, 7. See, we're getting close to the heart of the matter here. Why Paul wrote Romans. The purpose of Paul. So triumphalism is the great enemy of the humility that safeguards the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. Read Ephesians 4, 1 to 3. So in Romans eleven thirteen, Paul... And I call it the Goliath-like triumphalism. It's almost like they're vocalizing Goliath's despising of the Jews by saying, we have this great freedom and you're not taking advantage of it. We don't know if you're really even in the kingdom of God. And then the reaction, we don't think you pagans are in the kingdom of God because you flaunt your liberties. They needed a message from Paul which was to the Jew first and also to the Greco-Roman and even to the barbarian. There were, there were Jews, there were Greco-Romans of the refined kind that the Jews considered pagans, and then there were the barbarians that the pagans considered to be savage. Paul said, I owe them all a hearing of the gospel, all of them. I'm indebted to all of them, Jew, Greek, Roman, barbarian. I love that about Paul. The more I know about him, the more I really like him. But in keeping with the spirit of our times, does he like me? I really don't care. I know he's going to like me in my new resurrection body. And I know you'll like the way you look. I guarantee it now. We've said that before. That's overused. Now, the enthusiasm of the strong, then, is one of conceit and not of confidence in God's mercy. There's something you can be enthusiastic about. God's mercy, which he intends to show to all humanity. Romans 11.32, now there's something you can get enthusiastic about. Something you can be zealous about. With a zeal that threatens to consume you, like I'm being consumed. If you haven't noticed yet, I'm a madman. I'm looking at the camera now for our DVD groups. That's 2 Corinthians 5, 12, and 13, by the way. I'm protecting myself here. Enthusiasm of the strong is one of conceit and not of confidence in God's mercy, not only for oneself, but confidence in God's mercy for others. Let me ask you a question. Do you have confidence in God's mercy for the hardened part of Israel? Jews that reject the gospel? Do you have confidence in God's mercy for Islam and Muslims? Do you have confidence in God's saving mercy for atheists, for Buddhists, for Hindus, for Sikhs? To the Sikhs I say this. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. That's S-I-K-H. Anyway, no, never mind. Please indulge my stupidity in the pulpit because I don't get much chance to be stupid except for all the time I'm outside of the pulpit. So, this enthusiasm was the problem of some of the Gentile Christians in Rome in Paul's day and elsewhere and at other times, including our own time and place. As we've been learning, they were in effect boasting that branches were broken off from the cultivated olive tree, Israel. Branches were broken off to accommodate me 
Gentile Christians. So that the Gentiles could be grafted in as if they replaced Israel. And that's not the case at all. A Gentile church hasn't replaced Israel. It's become part of the Israel of God, Gentiles and Jews. The church, the body of Christ, isn't a Jewish congregation. It isn't a Gentile congregation. It's an altogether new thing called a new creation. It's an altogether new thing called the Israel of God, consisting of graced pagans and graced Jews. Fellow partakers of the gospel, Ephesians 3, 6. And so, they were boasting that branches were broken off as if they had replaced hardened Israel, and therefore God's forgotten about hardened Israel. That's an interesting thing to think about. It's an interesting arrogance. It's kind of like the arrogance that supported an event in history called the Holocaust. If God's permanently forsaken them, let's just do God's work and hammer them into nothing. God hasn't forsaken his people. In fact, Israel's name, Israel actually means he who fights against God. And guess who God loves? His enemies. If you're going to be perfect in love, as Jesus said, love your enemies... Love your enemies and be perfect in love as your father in heaven is perfect. He has a particular kind of love for his enemies. And in Romans eleven twenty eight, God made Israel, the hardened part, enemies for the gospel's sake, but they are beloved because of the patriarch's sake. God loves hardened Israel as much as he loved Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And listen carefully to this. And as much as he loved the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, which is his own beloved son. You want to know God's attitude toward people that reject him? It's love. And the measure of your faith is the measure of your conformity to God's love and desire that his enemies be saved. Otherwise, you who consider yourselves strong in faith are not strong in a faith that works by love, which is the only faith there is. Galatians 5, 6. Not circumcision, nor is it uncircumcision. It's not the strong in faith or the weak in faith. It's not the factions. It's a faith that works by love. And the test of faith is love. And the real test of faith is, are you and I participating in the faithfulness of Messiah and his love and the Father's love, which isn't for a segment of humankind, but for the world? I think it says God so loved the world somewhere in Scripture. Everybody knows that verse, but every Christian in this place ought to know a thousand others at least. Just thought I'd tell you that. Just in case you're triumphal about your knowledge of the scriptures, which none of you are. So as we wind down here a little bit, which is really a winding up, I have the Beatles station. We have the Beatles station on our Sirius XM, which we have for a while. And it's my, I like that station. But this morning I noticed before I turn to Elvis and his hymns, I noticed George Harrison had a song I never heard of, and it was called Cheer Down instead of Cheer Up. That's kind of like what Paul's saying. Cheer down if your cheer is all about you and all about your conceit. Cheer down. If you are excited about the gospel which, invi- which gives saving mercy to all, cheer up. It's funny how God just does little, his providence, let's say it that way, does little tiny things to say, that's what I want you to talk about today. That's what I want you to talk about today. Cheer down. Just joking. Now, 
This is not enthusiasm about a good thing that these Gentiles were engaged in. It is conceit. As as much enthusiasm today is, whether social, political, religious, racial slash ethnic, or regarding personal or collective human achievement or the perception of it thereby. So this I have in caps in my notes, and I'm going to read it straight. The gospel is the disclosure of God's righteousness, which is his action taken for the deliverance of humankind and all of creation. It is the power of God for salvation of all the human race, especially, but not exclusively, those who believe. Those who presently have faith, whether Jew or pagan or barbarian. So Romans eleven seventeen. Let's look at this. This is we'll give it some anchorage here and some documentation. But if some branches, please notice he says some branches. He's referring to Israel and the olive tree from Jeremiah eleven sixteen to nineteen. I count that as four verses. I know instead of one. If some branches, notice this correlates back with Paul talking about. Some were hardened. Some in Israel were hardened. And then he says, until. Only a tiny remnant will be saved, says Romans 9, quoting Isaiah. But that means salvation at the present time during the course of the evil age. All Israel will be saved, according to Isaiah 40 through 55, those 16 chapters. At the end of the evil age. In an act of God. That's like resurrection from the dead. If some branches were broken off, and that's the same as the analogy is to the hardened part of Israel, and you, Gentile Christians, though a wild olive tree were grafted in among them and have become a participant in the richness of the root. That's the root of Israel, which is rich because it is intended to make rich all the nations, not just Israel, all creation. You've become participants in the rich root. Ultimately, the root is Christ. I just want you to know that, but this is the way Paul approaches it. You became partakers in the rich root of the cultivated olive tree. This is my translation. Verse 18. Do not be arrogant. See it? Do not be arrogant toward the branches. And this ultimately goes towards some Gentile Christians who were being arrogant toward Jewish Christians who had actually come into the fold but were still holding on to some of the strictures found in Torah when it came to setting their table. And so Jews would invite Gentile Christians over, Jewish Christians invite Gentile Christians over, and they would say, the Gentile Christian would say, where's the pork chop? And the Jewish Christian would say, we don't serve pork. Here says in the Torah, da, da, da. The Gentile says, huh, I'm leaving in a huff. Come on, little Goliath, let's go from our, you know. So, it's a serious, it's, I'm making light of it, but it's, it was back then it was a serious problem. It was a fractionalism. Do not be arrogant toward the branches. That is enthusiastically triumphing over them as if you're better than they are. This is triumphalism. If you are boasting, Paul says, if you're going to defy my suggestion here and if you are boasting you ought to know this he says you aren't sustaining the root the root is sustaining you 
You aren't upholding Israel. Israel is upholding you. The root is ultimately the Messiah. Christians who think they're saved by some condition they've met think that they're sustaining Christ in heaven. They would say, well, which one of us is to go up to heaven to bring Christ down? Which one of us goes down into the abyss to bring Christ up? Is there human cooperation in Christ coming down from heaven? Is there human cooperation in Christ coming up from the grave? Absolutely not, but some people think there is. If you're saved by works, or if you're saved by your own personal faith, rather than the faithfulness of Messiah, which accords with God's grace. A lot of enthusiasm today. Got to be curbed. A lot of Adamic ontology running around saying, Jesus, I love Jesus. It's me and Jesus. I have a relationship with Jesus. Yes, you do. You're dead with him. So be made alive with him and walk a straight line according to the gospel which welcomes everybody. Remember what I said at the outset of Romans 11. Paul is reproving. All scripture is profitable for reproof and for correction. Correction is hopefully the result of this reproof. Paul is reproving and hopefully correcting the Gentile Christians, at least a group of them, a substantially sized group of them. And some of them actually, some of them went so far as to say, let us go out and do evil that good may come. We're saved by grace where grace or sin abounds, grace all the more abounds. And they took that as a license to do whatever they wanted. So some of them were really severely off. There's a connection back here to Romans 6, 1 through Romans 8, 13. There's also a forward projection, Romans 12, 1, all the way through 15, 13. It all hangs together beautifully. There isn't sections and parentheses and this and Paul saying, okay, I'm abruptly stopping my subject here and going to another subject. None of that's... This is all one sustained thought of God through his apostle. So he's reproving and hopefully correcting a certain group of Gentile Christians. If he corrects them and brings them into the fold of Gentile Christians or strong in faith who do not judge the weak in faith but welcome them, he's doing a great service to bringing a Christian unit integrity. And on any team in any enterprise, including missions, Unit integrity is the most solid and necessary factor for victory. You have a team that doesn't have unit integrity, I guarantee they won't end up more than eight and eight this year. You have a team with unit integrity, where all the team is together as one and not despising one or judging the other or one prima donna dancing above all the others you got a greater chance for victory. The gospel will go forward much better through a unity where people love one another. And Jesus said, if you love one another, then the whole world will know that you are my disciples. You see the power of this epistle here. It's, it's practical power, and it's for us. He's quite powerfully telling the Gentile Christians, to put off their elective elitist arrogance, their triumphal enthusiasm, because it's rooted in the false idea that they're better than the broken off branches. And the harmful assumption that those branches are broken off permanently. The assumption is they're broken off permanently. Now, this is very close to what I would call boldly a Nazi interpretation. Those Jews that have been broken off permanently, their backs are bent down forever, like some translations support that interpretation. Now, I'm only going extreme for that reason, to show you that you've got to interpret the Scriptures properly. 
They are not broken off. Paul foresees a day when they will be grafted back on and when God will disannul their unbelief. He doesn't disannul his people. He doesn't forsake his people. Who do you think you are, Gentile Christians? To think, if he's, incidentally, if he elected them and then broke them off permanently, then how do you know he hasn't elected you to break you off permanently? You ought to stop your conceit and instead fear. Be afraid. If that's the kind of God you worship, small G-O-D, a capricious God who elects permanently and then rejects permanently, he's a liar. He's a fraud. But a lot of people worship that God. It's a little thing I like to call idolatry. Because it always, idolatry always eventually puffs up and inflates the importance of the idol worshiper. If we're worshiping Jesus Christ, worship always conforms the worshiper into the image of the worshiped. And if we're conformed to Jesus Christ's image, we're conformed to one who says, I am lowly of heart. His lowliness of heart was connected with his unrestricted love. Remember the arrogant, rich, young ruler who came up? I've obeyed all these commandments ever since I was an infant. You think Jesus looked at him and said, I ought to thump this SOB into the ground. You know what he says? In Mark ten twenty one, Jesus beheld him and loved him. Then he said, you're only lacking one thing then, young man. Some people think that young man might have been Saul of Tarsus who said later, I once knew Jesus after the flesh. I don't know him that way anymore. I tried to interpret his call to go sell everything, give it to the poor, and come follow after me as a legalistic mandate that I couldn't live up to. Now I understand what he was saying. It's all about his faithfulness, all about his grace. And I have to forsake even my own life, which is my own conceit. It's not a hard thing to forsake your own life also. To forsake our own life is simply to put off the Adamic ontology that's screwing us up anyways and to put on the new man. The new man is Christ. Put on the Lord Jesus Christ. Romans thirteen fourteen. I have so much more, but I'm going to cut it soon because I understand there's a Steeler game today which you can be rightly enthusiastic about to a point. There's a lot of things in life you can be enthusiastic about. You can be enthusiastic about shooting. You can be enthusiastic about archery. You can even be enthusiastic and still be going to heaven about ballet. Or what I meant was opera, even opera. Even opera lovers are going to heaven by the thousands. It's astonishing to me. Even Figaro. Figaro, Figaro, Figaro. I'll see you in heaven. Go Figaro. You say, I hope you're ending up, almost ending up here. I am. Now listen. So you, verse 19... You who keep on boasting will say this. This is the essence of your boast. Branches were broken off so that I may be grafted in. So I have the right to despise these Jewish Christians with their kosher scruples. Wrong. There's a similar pride here as that which was found in Elijah in the early part of the chapter when he what? made a plea against Israel and said, I alone am left. (laughs) Ultimately, elective elitist arrogance gets you right down to only one person. And it ain't Christ, it's you. I alone am left. I'm the only person in my generation who really loves Jesus. 
I don't want to make a whole series out of a BS statement, so I won't say that, but I don't mean Bachelor of Science. Paul then concedes, and this I'll close with. Paul then concedes. He says, okay, I'll give you that. Rightly said. They were broken off because of unbelief. And you are caused to stand, that is to stay in place as grafted in branches by faith, which I'll make a case for in the future. That means the faithfulness of Christ in which you participate because by an act of God, faith was elicited in you. So here, though he's saying you're standing by faith, ultimately that means they're standing in grace, which is their participation in Christ's fidelity. But that's all coming up soon, so I want to just make that clear now. Rightly said, Paul said, they were broken off because of unbelief, and your cause to stay in place by faith or the faithfulness of Christ. So do not be haughty, insolent, arrogant, conceited, but be afraid. He's really calling for the fear of the Lord, which is the beginning of wisdom. They're not wise here. They're wise in their own conceits. Paul said, I don't want you to be wise in your own conceit, so I want to tell you about a mystery. A mystery that the Jews are hardened in part for a little while to open the door for the Gentiles to come in, and then all Israel will be saved. That's a mystery if you're not aware of it, you're conceited. You have triumphalism. You aren't even functional in the spiritual life. Triumphalism will kill your spiritual life. You're not walking according to the truth of the gospel like Peter who withdrew at Antioch from the Gentile Christians over what? Kosher table laws? Under pressure from men of reputation from Jerusalem? One thing God has done for me, and he didn't do it until I was pretty old, (laughs) freed me from men of reputation in order to listen entirely to Jesus Christ. It's kind of like Isaiah. In the day that Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and lifted up. That's what I want for you. That's what I want for you. I want you to see the Lord high and lifted up. And that might mean when you see him that you're all undone in yourself, that you see that there's nothing in yourself that can be recommended to God, that you see that you must put off the whole old man. That's part of it. It's traumatic. It's painful. It causes weeping, the sorrow. I'm going to miss that old man. And gnashing of teeth, it hurts sometimes. To be separated from the Adamic ontology. That's everything you loved. It's everything you caress and embrace and want the best for. It's yourself. It's losing your life to gain it in Christ. I want you all to see the Lord high and lifted up. I want you to see Jesus Christ risen, ascended, and enthroned as the Lamb of God who took away the sin of the whole world. That leaves Christendom undone. It makes them lose their life in Adam but find their life in the new man, Jesus Christ. That's what the power of this message is. And so he says in closing, verse 21, for if God did not spare those natural branches, which is Israel after the flesh, he won't spare you either. The problem is, or the reality is, though, he did spare those branches because in verse 22 and following, He talks about disannulling their faith, or their unbelief, rather. That means he's going to elicit faith in all of Israel. And it means every eye is going to see Yahweh in his pierced flesh. Jesus, having been crucified, raised, exalted, every eye will see him, and at that time, every knee will genuflect before him, 
Every tongue will acknowledge that this Yahweh is Yeshua to the glory of God the Father. And all flesh together will experience the salvation of the Lord. Here's something for you to glory in. Be enthusiastic about. Be consumed about. Salvation is from the Lord. Thank you, Father, for this opportunity to express the gospel of grace, which endorses no particular people group, but endorses your grace and love toward all people. Thank you, Father, that there is an area that we can be ultimately consumed in our zeal about. And it's what we call the universal saving significance of Jesus Christ. This vision is something without which Christians perish. They leave on the Adamic ontology. They cast off restraint. But with this vision, Christians put on the restraint that restrains evil triumphalism, that restrains the conceit of human arrogance, and that puts on the Lord Jesus Christ and makes no provision, makes no reservation, makes no room for the Adamic ontology. Thank you, Father. And that's all I can say to you now, Father, because I'm wordless except to say thank you.